Hello, Ava. Hey, John. Let's pick up where we left off in the last episode. We were looking at cloning. Last time, you know, the episode was called I Cloned My Dog, I Cloned My Dog. Which never gets old. And we ended up uh, looking at how cloning doesn't have much to do with humans per se. Yet. Yet, at least. But it does have to do with animals at this point in time in a very real and active way. And that's not just people who clone their pets or who can afford to clone their pets, but it's used in farming. And so you mentioned that this is now really like an animal rights issue, right? Yeah, more than anything else. So we're, we're going to look at that more closely. Uh, welcome to episode eight. I cloned my cow. I cloned my cow. Aha. So I reached out to the nonprofit organization Compassion in World Farming, which was actually set up 50 years ago by a British farmer who was becoming increasingly concerned with how intense animal farming was becoming. Interestingly, just as a side note, They're not vegan or vegetarian, but they advocate instead that animals should be reared and ultimately slaughtered according to high welfare standards. So anyway, they referred me to one of their chief policy advisors, Peter Stevenson. Stevenson is a lawyer and he has worked in the animal welfare sector for over three decades and played a leading role in winning EU bans on certain cages and crates in farming as well as passing an EU legislation that recognizes animals as sentient beings. So I asked Stevenson what he thought about cloning and how it affected animals. He started off by walking me through the scientific process of it and then revealed some more shocking facts about the birthing process. Of course, in his examples, he focuses on animals being cloned in agriculture, not pets. So it's, it's implanted into what's called a surrogate mother, and she will carry that embryo as it gradually develops over the weeks and becomes a cloned fetus. And then eventually that cloned fetus you know, is born. Now, this process of transferring, of implanting this v- very tiny cloned embryo into the surrogate mother is actually very, very stressful. With, with pigs and sheep, it's going to involve a surgical procedure. With uh, cattle, it's, it's what's called embryo transfer, and that's sufficiently stressful that certainly in the UK, the law requires it be done with an anaesthetic, you know, either general or epidural. But, but that's when the, the, the biggest problems then start happening, because a very large number of cloned embryos, you know, die during pregnancy, they fail to survive. Once they become fetuses, many of these cloned fetuses die at or or shortly after birth. There's a very low success rate. Of those that survive, that are born alive, many die in the early weeks of life from cardiovascular failure, respiratory difficulties, kidney problems, defective immune systems, musculoskeletal abnormalities. And one study that looked at all this, brought all this together, said of those born alive, 22% of of cloned calves, 25% of cloned piglets, 50% of cloned lambs die before they even get weaned. So, you know, a huge 
catalogue of mortality and, and painful problems for the clones and for the mothers. For example, with a key problem with cloned calves is what they call large offspring syndrome. Cloned calves are often much larger than a normal calf. This can lead to very difficult, painful births. The use of caesarean sections to deliver them is much greater than normal. Indeed, all these problems were summed up by the um, European Food Safety Authority, which said that the health and welfare of a significant proportion of clones is adversely affected, often severely, and uh, with a fatal outcome. I asked Stevenson if he could give me some more specific figures, you know, hard data on the use of cloning and farming. It's really hard. I looked again over the weekend to make sure was there some fresh information that I wasn't aware of. And it's really hard to get, you know, clear, specific figures. Um, there was a huge battle in the European Union eight, nine years ago about this. And the European Parliament was absolutely clear that there shouldn't be any cloning in the EU. There shouldn't be any use of cloned animals or, and their offspring on EU farms. And that was a battle that raged for about three years. Um, but eventually the whole thing of it died down. It was decided that meat and milk from clones or, or more likely their offspring would be dealt with under what's called the novel foods regulation, which is how any new kind of food has to be approved before being sold, you know, to make sure it's safe for consumers. But it doesn't look at the animal welfare aspects. And there's really no information I doubt if cloning is going on in Europe, but to what extent we're getting imported offspring of clones. Certainly, again, going back seven or eight years, there were a few cases reported in the media of the offspring of clones coming into UK farms. You see, there's no requirement for the food, this meat or milk, to be labelled, so consumers don't know. Why are there no figures? Well, that, that itself is something of a scandal. It's even hard to know which countries it's actually going on in. Looking at information recently, it seems there's a certain amount of cloning going on in the US and Canada, in Argentina, in Australia, probably in Brazil, if only because there's the presence of companies that do cloning. But it's really hard, and as I say, consumers aren't, it's not labelled. There's a current scandal going on in the UK where the UK government is pushing through legislation very quickly to permit the I mean, gene editing of animals is already permitted on the experimental basis, but to permit gene edited animals and their offspring to be used in UK farms for their meat and milk to be sold in, in UK shops, but the government's insistent it won't be labelled. So consumers who don't are opposed to this on, on ethical animal welfare grounds won't be able to play a part and say, no, we don't want this. This is being foisted on consumers. And it's being foisted on consumers because this is part of a the high-tech factory farming world that is forever looking for new technologies to push breeding further, to get animals to grow faster, to be more productive. Um, I mean, I gave you an example, a couple of examples from selective breeding. So this is essentially the point, right? Is to produce animals for consumption in the most efficient way. Selective breeding has been done, I mean, probably since the beginning of farming breeding the strongest, healthiest animals with each other to produce the best possible offspring is kind of sensical, right? 
But then Stevenson mentions CRISPR and how CRISPR and cloning kind of go hand in hand these days in farming because you use CRISPR to optimize the animal and then you clone that optimized animal. Voila. It's kind of like selective breeding on steroids. CRISPR-Cas9 is the kind of method. There are others, but it's the one most commonly used. Now, cloning is an important part of this process because once you've got your gene-edited animal, if you want to scale this up to have enough animals for a commercial enterprise, you're going to clone them. So despite the lack of the low success rate, cloning hasn't just disappeared. Uh, It's still there. But there are other reasons from an animal welfare point of view to object this beyond just um, the the huge problems in the process itself and the large number of animals that suffer and die. The main reason for cloning farm animals and indeed for gene editing, uh, there's two main reasons. Firstly, to get animals to grow faster uh, and have higher yields and also for disease resistance. But just traditional selective breeding over the last 30 years uh, to get animals to grow far, to, you know, to drive animals to faster growth and higher yields has caused immense problems. For example, chickens reared for meat, broilers, have been selectively bred to grow very, very quickly, and their their legs, heart, and circulatory system can't properly support that rapidly growing body. As a result, each year globally, billions of chickens are suffering from painful leg disorders, while others succumb to heart problems. Another example can be seen with cows. You know, naturally a cow would produce just over a thousand litres for her calf in in a 10-month lactation. But modern dairy cows have been selectively bred to produce 10, even 12,000 litres of milk a year. This puts a huge strain on their bodies. Many of them are suffering. It's not the only reason for this, but it's a big contributor to this, these very high yields, from painful lameness and, and mastitis, which is an other infection, as, as well as suffering from reproductive and metabolic disorders. So selective breeding has been a disaster for farm animals. We've now got cloning and gene editing poised to make this worse. The other big thing that the scientific community will tend to say is, well, we can clone animals to make them disease. You know, you take an animal which is disease resistant and you make lots of copies, you've got a disease resistant herd. If you look at disease resistance, you're cloning or gene editing for disease resistance, it sounds good. And, and indeed, if you're talking about diseases that have nothing to do with how animals are being kept, it, can, it may well be beneficial. An awful lot of diseases in farmed animals are coming from them being kept in very kind of crowded, stressful conditions. You know, the kind of conditions which lead to the to the emergence, spread, and even amplification of pathogens. Now, the proper way to deal with this uh, is to keep animals in good conditions and in, in what I call health-oriented systems, systems in which good health is inherent in the farming methods, rather than being propped up by cloning or or gene editing for disease resistance. And the the big problem you're going to have here is that if you make animals resistant through cloning to the diseases of factory farming, it could perpetuate factory farming. Indeed, it could allow animals to be kept in even worse conditions than now because they will be uh, resistant to the diseases that are inevitable when animals are kept in very poor, 
stressful conditions. So the other problem with disease resistance, of course, is if you've got, you know, a cloned herd, they're all by definition genetically identical. And so if a disease gets into that farm, it's going to spread, you know, like wildfire. There's none of the genetic diversity which can create natural disease resistance. I then wondered if those clones are breeding with each other. Um, that's a good point. I mean, clones are very high-value breeding animals. They're, they're going to be kept on farms, not for their meat and milk, but as, as high-value breeding animals. You could either breed two clones or you could breed a clone and an, an ordinary animal. But what you then, once you've bred the clones, what you've got is ordinary animals, so you refer to them as the offspring of clones, they're not themselves clones, but they too will all be genetically identical or almost genetically identical and, and therefore all equally vulnerable to a disease that gets onto the farm. And so, yes, the, the meat and milk from clones or gene-edited animals that comes into shops, and it's very hard to know how much is already there, probably, probably not a lot, but some. Uh, that's not going to come from the clones themselves, but from the offspring of clones. Wow. So, okay, what's the takeaway then? In you know, in what sense, Ava, are clones part of our diets? Well, it's kind of murky territory, as Stevenson said. It's like we're still in the Wild West period of cloning and gene editing. It's like the early days of, well, anything really, where there's just not enough data or knowledge to set up clear laws. Or something horribly wrong hasn't happened yet. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, so Stevenson did say that it's very unlikely that cloned animals are being produced for meat consumption in Europe but that in other countries, it may actually be quite common and there's just a lack of regulation behind it, so nobody really knows. And by nobody, I mean the consumer, right? But this is speculation, of course. We don't want to create a conspiracy theory here. Okay, so in farming, cloning can be said to have a, had a negative impact on, on animals, but did you ask um, Stevenson what he thinks about this whole service industry of cloning pets? I did. Okay, so this is, I'm now not talking about on behalf of Compassion in World Farming because it's a farm animal organisation, so it's just my personal view. Uh, as you know from the barking episode earlier, I've got two dogs. Um, I've had a number of dogs over my life. It's immensely upsetting, painful when a, when you, a dog dies at the end of its life. Uh, but I don't think the right answer is to then clone a copy of it. it. It's immensely upsetting, but new dogs, very different probably from the dog that you've lost, somehow arrive in your life. Um, and I, th I think to clone a pet dog is a denial of the nature of life. I mean, very, very sadly, all of us die eventually. And I think one just has to have a painful accept that. Um, I think, I think the gross interference, and I'm talking more broadly than just about pets, the gross interference with, with, with nature, the lack of respect for the natural world is behind a fair number of the problems that we're now experiencing, you know, problems like climate change, loss of biodiversity, immense kind of amount of 
pollution of water through factory farming. So no, I don't think one should be cloning one's plants. I really appreciated this perspective because he wasn't saying that cloning is freaky or morally wrong. He wasn't criticizing the ethics of it. He was saying that death, as sad as it is, is a part of life and that it's sort of tragically coming to terms with that is a big part of what it means to be human. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but then at the same time, you know, grief is so subjective. It's a personal thing and it's very hard to tell someone, you know, how they should or shouldn't, you know, try and get over it. And for someone like Dorit, you know, if you remember the phone call from the beginning of the last episode, you know, she knows that her clone dog, Samson, is a different dog. You know, it's not the exact same as the original dog, Salmor. You know, so cloning Salmor for her was, you know, a way to grieve and, and honor the memory of her, should I say, initial dog? Yeah, no, I do get that. Like, she wants to keep his memory alive and cloning him is the closest she can get to that. None of this is black and white, obviously. I feel like that's something that everyone can relate to. It's something that connects us all, is that we go to extreme measures for love. And that's essentially what Museyev was motivated by. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just, it's fascinating almost how deeply philosophical this is. It's not science fiction anymore. This is happening right now. Um, so speaking of which, did you ever meet her in person or was the phone call as far as things went? No, I did. I actually did. I got to, um, I'm happy to say we got to meet uh, with Dorit. I was in London with Mundi, our intrepid CEO and executive producer of this podcast. And he knows her from Iceland. So we got a chance to visit her in her lovely West London house and ask her about Samson and Samor. So that's it. You just, okay. I guess it's pretty Here we are. Here we are. Okay. Ringing the doorbell. D. <laughs> she didn't have a hello or anything. Hi. Hello. Hi. Of course. Tell me, guys, you're interviewing me about Samson. Yeah, so I don't know if you remember the phone call you had three uh, Yeah, it's years already ago. three years ago. With, with myself. Can you tell us like the story about what happened? Yes. Um, Agnes, Salmer is vet in Iceland, took a vial of blood and a little bit of skin from Salmer. And uh, a guy from FedEx came. We gave it to him and he took the samples to Texas, to the lab. Oh, it's in Texas. It was put on ice, not dissimilar to the ice that you have in the vodka. But you know, <laughs> it's a dry ice as opposed to a wet ice. Yes. And that's where the process began. It was then inserted into a bitch that lived in Rochester because the terrain should have been as similar as possible to Iceland. Okay. We had two failed attempts. Right. And the third one. It worked out. Yes. Have you seen the photographs of me first getting him? I'm not sure. I don't think so, no. You need to see that. I mean, that will tell you a lot more than words came. It's on my Instagram. If I could clone my father, I would do it immediately. Do you have some samples of your father? We all have samples everywhere. All you need to do today is some hair, nails, any genetic material could do it. It's helpful if you've got blood, but you've got dried blood somewhere. You have some from your father, dried blood. 
I kept some as soon as he died. It's going to be another way of, of giving birth. In fact, a much more, and again, I'm sure I'm going to be hugely criticized, but a much less barbaric way of giving birth. You mean just that the whole procedure happens in like a artificial womb? I'm not even sure if they're going to need an artificial womb, but who know who, I mean, this is not an area where I can, where I know about. I mean, the less barbaric part comes from then the no sex part or the given? No, no, the sex part's the good part. Right, yeah, that's oh, what I thought. On, like, the painful part. And yeah. having to be, especially for some women, very uncomfortable and are you are you considering to like clone Sam? Is it? I wouldn't need to. The same genetic material is already there. Okay, so but do you intend to keep him like alive for the rest of your life? I very much hope so. I mean, as in, if he would die, you would clone him again. If I would die? No, he, the the dog. Well, Sam, all of his children might want one. I mean, he's so much part of the family. He's the love of my life. There's no question. And do you see? that it's the same it's frightening oh really it's absolutely frightening yes how identical they are yes in every way okay. samson didn't Samuel didn't like clapping he always barked samson does exactly the same thing obviously Samuel was a re basically a rescue dog he grew up on a farm he didn't have the attention the nutrients the health care that samson has so in a strange way, he also didn't have the upbringing. Right. I mean, but Samson still there's... is seriously trained. He's yeah. polite. He asks you first. He, mm -hmm. he, but they're very they're identical. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Wow. Even, Even in personality. Huh. Soul carries on. Yes. Very strange. One difference. Samson never liked children. Salmer never liked children. And this is because on the farm ah. where he was brought up, the children annoyed him. I particularly tried to have Samson with a lot of kids around him, and he loves children. He's very gentle with them. Salmer always used to snap at them. Ah, so you can, yeah, yeah you, can, you can train certain things, yes. of course. Yes. So just to pause here, we go on a mission at this point to find some more tonic for our drinks uh, before we finally get to um, see Dorit's video of her first encounter with her beloved Samson. It's a moment that I will never, ever forget. Oh, wow. I, that first minute, I don't know if you noticed, he looks back at the woman that has taken care of him since he was basically born, if you want to call it that, uh, and looks at her and says, please don't leave me with this woman, which was me. Yeah. He wants to go back with her. Two seconds later, he starts kissing me, licking mm -hmm. me. I mean, it is amazing. He clearly, the epigenetics clearly plays a big part. Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, like, you mean like the, the kind of the genetic memory? Oh, absolutely. She, yeah, it starts licking. Just, just, just look at this. And cut. Yeah, because he kind of slightly shivers at the first yeah. and then and then starts to lick, lick you. <laughs> oh, yeah, you. This is, oh my God, it's so cute. Wow. Um, I mean, she seems like a fascinating person. Yeah, she really is. Um, I have to say, she's a real character and... And a real believer, what's more, you know, she feels that this is a force of good for humanity, you know, and just generally the whole domain of biotechnology and all the potential that it offers us. You know, she really believes in it. So where are you at with your thinking about cloning? 
Um, if I'm honest, I, I'm still kind of on the fence in the sense that like a lot of the things that we look at in the Lifecycle podcast, I feel like it's almost inevitable that we as humans will go and do it. You know, there's always somebody who's going to rush ahead and, and do it. And that really, hopefully what this podcast can contribute to is the bigger conversation that needs to happen. And maybe we should come back to cloning and CRISPR, not even cloning, but just CRISPR and some of the more um, small scale genetic you know, interference that we as humans can do now. You know, we need to kind of have this conversation. What really struck me, um, what Dorit said was uh, when she talked about this becoming a new way to give birth. And birth can be really traumatic, and I don't want to deny that. But at the same time, I think for me, giving birth was like the most incredible transformative experience I've ever had, like indescribable. And also just a privilege and I would hope that people who wish to have biological children would be able to go through that experience as well. Not to say that having children in a different way is not just as meaningful and powerful, but simply as a physical experience that my mind and body have gone through, there's nothing I can compare it to. Thanks for listening and thanks to our guests, Peter Stevenson and to Dorit Musea. This episode was written and produced by me, Ava Kelly, with additional writing by John Holton. Sound editing and design was by the magnificent and wonderful David Magnuson. Mundi Bundy is our executive producer and he also created the artwork for this episode in collaboration with Midjourney. Additional research, uh, script supervision and fact-checking was by Savita Joshi. Follow us on social media and subscribe for more wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. And reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Bye. Bye-bye.